finishing a sermon series as we have been studying the grace of God. It's been a very good study. At the very beginning, week number one, if you were here week number one, you may remember me saying that I kind of hoped that this would be like a, a fresh drink of water uh, in, in your season of life. And I sure hope that it has been that, and I hope that this morning uh, will be that as well. It has been good for me studying the grace of God, and today we're going to look at where grace is taking us, the final victory and the complete triumph of grace. I've chosen for the text this morning, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to read that. I'll ask you to stand one last time in the honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 21. Beginning there, the Word of God says this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Let us pray. Father, we love you this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to come and worship you. But God, now as we open up the bread of life, your precious word, we ask God that you would open our eyes to see it. God, that You'd open our hearts to understand it. God, that You'd open our ears to hear it. Lord, I pray this very morning that You would encourage Your people. God, as they see the power of Your grace is strong enough to finish what You started. Help us to see the end that You're taking us to. God, this morning I pray if there be any here in this house that are still yet not saved, that are still in their sins, that God, today would be the day they would see the need in their life for the almighty grace of God to wash over them, to wash them white as snow, and to bring them salvation on this day. And God, I pray this morning they'd come to You and find a full pardon from sin and iniquity. And God, that there would be added into Your family, brothers and sisters, this morning. God, I pray that You'd be glorified. I ask now that You would anoint me, God, with the unction of heaven to preach and the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Help me to say nothing more than what you'd have me to say. God, help me to say nothing less. Have your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been studying grace for the last six weeks. This morning is part six of a six-part series. In week one, we studied the God of all grace. And we looked at the reality that all real grace comes from God. In week one, we discussed exactly what is grace. The reality that it's the unmerited favor of God. It's when God gives us something great for no other reason than because He loves us. When we begin to see grace as something that you earn, it ceases to be grace. Grace is something that is unearned, it is unmerited, it is given freely by God because He loves us and chooses to be a gracious God to us. And we saw in week one that God was the God of all grace. That all true grace comes from God. And week number two, we looked at the power of that grace in us. And we discussed the reality that not only does God's grace have the power to save us from hell, not only does God's grace have the power to bring us salvation, but His grace has the power to change us. And when God's grace is given to us, and we receive it, and it works in us, it changes us from the inside out. We talked about the amazing fact that Christianity is not about outward motions to make us look pure and clean, but it is about inward grace of God that changes us, that changes our hearts from the inside out, and therefore creates good works. In week three, we discussed God's grace through us. I loved all of these sermons so far. I thought all of the topics were great, but I especially like week three as we discussed that God wants to work through us, that His grace shouldn't stop when we receive it, but that we should be instruments of God's grace to each other and to this lost and dying world, that the love of God and the almighty grace of God should come from us to other people. And week four, we looked at the supreme example of God's grace, the cross. And we looked at the other side of grace. The reality that sometimes grace has to do hard things. And that God's grace is not some weak thing where He overlooks every bad thing anybody's ever done and just treats them with all this uh, fluff. But that God's grace sent Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary. And that the grace of God sometimes requires us to give of ourselves for what is best for others. And we looked at how God gave the best He had to give, His Son. He exhausted everything possible He had to give for us in giving His Son. But not only did God the Father give all that He could give, so did God the Son, who laid down His own life freely at Calvary's cross. And we saw the other side of that coin of grace that God is willing to do the hard thing. And that sometimes when God's grace works in us and through us, so too must we take up our own cross for the cause of Christ, for what is best for others. Last week in week five, we looked at the reality that God can now freely give us all things in Christ. 
that because He was willing to send His Son to Calvary's cross, He can now bless His people freely. Which brings us to today. The final victory and complete triumph of grace. Where is grace leading us? Where is it going to take us? Is God's grace really strong enough to take us home? Is the goodness and love of God really able to triumph over everything that will come to try to keep us from making that final journey from this land into the next? Grace is leading us home. Can I tell you this morning that God is the author and the finisher? That's important to us because what God has started, trust me, brothers and sisters, He is certainly able to finish. There are a lot of things in my life that I thought sounded like good ideas that I've tried to do and found out halfway into it, I couldn't finish this thing. This must not have been for me. And I'm sure that all of you can testify to the same thing. But this morning, can I tell you that our God finishes what He starts. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that he was confident that God who started the good work in him would be able to finish it. God finishes what He starts. This morning, I want to tell you, church, that our God is going to finish what He has started in the church. His grace is able to overcome and victoriously triumph over everything that will try to stop His awesome plan for His people. His grace is victorious. In our text of Revelation chapter 21, we see first of all there's a passing away of the first heaven and the first earth. In other words... Child of God, this morning, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. Thank God that this is not our eternal home. I love, I'll probably say this a couple times this morning, but I love being a Christian. It is absolutely, without question, without hesitation, the greatest life on earth. There's really no life outside of Christ. Everything is empty. You can spend your entire life trying to fill yourself with fame, popularity, uh, fulfilling your own desires and your own lusts, and you will find that you end up bankrupt and empty every night of your life. There's no life outside of Christ. But in Christ, there is life. There is no greater life than the life that Jesus Christ gives. But having said that, I'm still thankful that this place is not my home. We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. God's grace, the unmerited favor of God, the supreme goodness of God, church, is going to take us to a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a passing away of the first. Not only that, but there God will dwell with us in His fullness. Verse 3 said, God Himself will be with them and be their God. God Himself will wipe away every tear. It's hard for us to get a hold of that. It's hard for us to fathom what the goodness of God will be like. 
when we can experience it in its fullness and there is no flesh and bone to hinder us from that, there is no sinful nature to hinder us from that, but we will experience God in His fullness. Can I tell you, if you think that grace that is, is amazing here in this world, wait until you see what's in the next. If you think what you've tasted of God, church, is good in this world, and it is good, wait until we enter into the next. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. For our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we don't belong here. I am not a citizen of earth. I am a pilgrim. I am a passer through. I am an alien in this world is another word that God calls it elsewhere. This is not my home. And the same is true for you, church. It's important we understand that for a handful of reasons. Number one, so that we don't grow discouraged when the things of this world grow dim, because they certainly do. When the things of this world fail us, when, when, when we find out that there's really no hope in this world, that with each passing day, this world is getting worse, it is moving closer to destruction, it is moving closer to its end, we can be thankful that this is not our home. I've got something to look forward to. I've got a place I'm journeying towards. God is preparing a new home for me in heaven. It's also important because we need to understand, and so I believe that within the church it would do us well to have some sense of holy desperation concerning the fact that time as we know it is limited. There will come a day and a time when time as we know it will cease to be and it will be no more and the final trump will sound and where a tree falls, if you will, there shall it lie. And on that day, those that are saved will enter into eternal peace and joy and those that are lost will enter into eternal torment of hell. This world is going to come to an end. There's a new heaven and a new earth. This morning I asked you the question, where are you going when the new heaven and new earth come? Are you going to that new heaven? Or are you going to an eternal hell? If you're a Christian this morning, you've got every reason to rejoice. You're going home. You're going to the place that your citizenship lies. The new Jerusalem. If you're lost this morning, the reality is, if you don't come to the life-saving grace of God and find mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that when that day comes, this world that you currently live in, it will pass away. The elements and everything thereof, the Bible says, will pass away with a fervent heat. And you will be cast into an eternity of hell. The worst part about that place, not only will there be suffering, not only will it be a continual death, 
Not only will you be isolated and alone and in a place that is called the outer darkness, representing isolation, but it says the worm dieth not. What does that mean? The worm dieth not. I believe it means that in your brain, in your head, the continual thoughts of all the times you rejected heaven, all the times that God opened His arms wide to you and said, please won't you come? Please won't you turn from your sins and follow Me? I will forgive you. I will give you mercy. I will give you grace. I will give you a new home in heaven. I will wash you white as snow. You will remember every time that you rejected the offer to flee from that awful hell. And it will burn in your mind for all of eternity. Knowing that you're there because you refused the grace of Almighty God. It's a reality that's going to happen one day. It's a reality that could be coming sooner than we think. But for the church, our citizenship is in heaven. It is not here at this place. Grace is going to lead us home because God is the author and finisher of our faith. Not only will grace lead us home in its final victory and its complete triumph, but grace is going to finish the problem of sin in this world. Grace will win victoriously over pain, suffering, and the goal of all those who have hated God and tried to destroy His plan. Grace wins. They lose. This point this morning is probably the most difficult for me to teach because I'm not sure exactly how to get it out, but I want to try I want to deal with the question. I want to deal with the problem of, if God is a loving and gracious God, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? If God is really so good, and His grace really so powerful, and His love really so big, then why? Does this world suffer the way that it suffers? First of all, let me say, it won't always be so. There will come a time when God completely and finally and fully deals with sin. And there will be no more wickedness. It will be punished. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. But what about now? What about now? I'll do my best to explain what's in here and in here. The reality is that outside of free will, outside of choice, love can never fully be shown. Why is there so much suffering and sin in this world? The answer is because God gives us a choice. God allows us to choose Him. Why did God put in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then say, don't eat it? Follow me this morning for a while. Why would God do such a thing? 
I mean, why not? If he knew that Eve was going to eat of this fruit, then, then why not just not even make the thing so that the world could go on forever and there would be no pain and suffering? Wouldn't that be better? No, it would not be better. Why, Joplin? First of all, because God knows what's best. Had it been better, God would have made it that way. But for those of you that say, well, that's circular reasoning and it, it, and it doesn't count, let me explain to you why it is better. Because outside of choice, love means nothing. Some of you may have heard this analogy before, but what would it be like to the man that, that was obsessive about his wife and he didn't ever want his wife to cheat on him, he didn't ever want his wife to look at another man, so he decides to obsessively lock her up and never let her out of a room and then feed her through a slot in the door. Now, that sounds mighty wicked, does it not? But yet it would guarantee one thing. She'd never look at another man. She'd never cheat on him. She'd never go anywhere else. Well, wouldn't that be better? Absolutely not. Because outside of choice, love means nothing. And in that garden... God said, I've given you everything I can give you. And the reality is, Adam and Eve had nothing to give God. But trust. But a heart that says, God, I believe you. And I don't under, even though I don't understand, I believe you. You see, that's what God wants from you. That's what God wants from us. There's really nothing you can do to show God you love Him more than trusting Him. This is why Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. See, this is how we actually show God we love Him, by obeying Him and trusting Him. And some have thought, well, God, just change me. Make me do the right thing. God says, I don't want that type of love from you. I want a love that is real, that is deep, that is authentic. And I want you to trust me and love me because I'm God, not because I force you to. See, that's real love. Now, here's what happened. Because there was choice, in comes the devil. And the devil does what he's been doing ever since that day. He causes people to question God. Talking to you about the situation of sin and suffering in this world. He causes people to question God. And he comes to Eve and he says, Eve, really, God's not as good as you think God is. Matter of fact, you can't really trust God. And the real reason God says no is because God does not have your best interest at heart. God knows that you'll become like Him. And God is this jealous person that doesn't care what's best for you and He wants to deceive you into thinking that He's bigger than you. And really, if you'll eat this fruit, Eve, you can be just like God. Did God really say that? Did God really say you cannot eat of this fruit, Eve? And Eve began to question God. And Eve was faced with a choice. And I want you to see this. There was no time yet to date that Eve could have showed God she loved Him and trusted Him more than at that moment. God actually created the opportunity for Eve to show God she loved God and trusted God. But she failed and chose to believe a lie. And she sinned against God. 
And she gave to her husband, and he ate, and he sinned against God. And in came to the world rebellion against the grace and love of God. And along with it came death and pain and suffering. And any time that there is sin, there will be pain and death and suffering. We cannot live amongst sin and be free from pain and suffering and death. Sin might look uh, tasty for a time. I don't doubt that that apple tasted sweet in her mouth, and I don't doubt that it tasted good going down, but the, 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 what took place, the repercussions of her sin, the outcome of her decisions were absolutely horrible and destructive in her life. And it is still true of sin today. The devil might paint it as a tasty little apple. He might tell you that actually if you'll do this thing, it is in your best interest. But friends, when we take in and we partake of sin, it always brings destruction and death. Now, we live in a world that is filled with sin. And therefore, there is destruction and death. God has basically two options. Two. And I want to share with you the reality that He's really going to do both. But because He's gracious, He hasn't did one of the two yet. Option number one. God would have to destroy everybody on the earth. You see, when we begin to think about wickedness and we think, God, how could such horrible things happen? And I acknowledge God, people, God, people do horrible, horrible things. I acknowledge that. I know it. Terrible things happen to people on this earth. I know. Our problem, though, is that we judge how bad sin is according to what I would be willing to do or not do. Not according to the holiness of God. We think God... How in the world can you allow wicked people to do wicked things and people to murder people and, 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 and children to be molested and, 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 and a lot of the just and, and sex trafficking and, and children to be brought up and brought into homes and then starved to death because they're in third world countries. God, how could you let all this go on if you were a good and loving God? Here's the response. Peter tells us in... 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, I believe, that God's not slack concerning His promise, but He's not willing that any should perish. You see, if God was going to deal with sin, He'd have to deal with all sin. And while we might think, correctly so, that the sins that I just named are absolute, horrible, unthinkable sins, can I tell you the most unthinkable sin is to look a holy God, stare Him down the face, if you will, and say, I will not do what you ask me to do. And to God, you're lying, you're conniving, you're thieving, you're gossiping. You're, every sin is an absolute wicked and horrid rebellion against the gracious, loving, almighty God. And so for God to deal with sin, why do we have sin still yet in this world? The answer is He'd have to deal with all of it. God wouldn't just come in and deal with the sins that you and I think are absolutely terrible. God would deal with all of it. Because all sin 
is being an enemy of God. All sin is war against God. Now let me ask you a question. and I don't want to show a hands, but I want you to think about for just a moment. I want you to think about your lost loved ones. I want you to think about your friends and your co-workers. I want you to ask yourself this question. If God decided He was going to judge sin in 15 minutes, and the world as we know it would be no more, would you want Him to come in 15 minutes? Or would you want to wait and have one last chance to reach that person and say, hey, you need to come to the grace of God. This is why God waits. This is why. This is why. And as long as God waits, as long as God waits, friends, there's going to be sin and suffering in the world. Therefore, even though God is gracious, even though God is good, even though He's all-loving, there is still going to be atrocities that take place because God, in His grace, is still waiting with arms wide open, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the first way that God decided to deal with the problem of sin. Rather than just annihilating the entire earth, He said, I will make a way out. This is the goodness of and graciousness of God. I will make a way out where I can take all of their sins and they can be paid for in an honest and real way. And they will be paid for by the death and the shed blood of an innocent man and that man will be my son and he will lay his life down freely and he will take the sins of the world on his shoulder and he will pay for them so that they don't have to pay for their own. That's grace. And then He would do it and He would stand and He would come out of that grave victoriously proving He was exactly who He said He was. Then He would open His arms and say, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto Me. And today the offer still stands. This is, how, this is one way that God has dealt with the problem of sin in this world. It is by making a way out and offering redemption and salvation and forgiveness to every one of us. Now, the second way that God will eventually deal with it is what I told you He could have did to start with. And that is, destroy it all. And there is going to be a day when that happens. Church, it should give us a stark reality of several things. Number one, this is not our home. Thank God for that. I've got a citizenship in heaven. I've got hope. I've got a reason to rejoice. And I've got a reason to go on. And I need to be telling people. We need to have some sense of urgency about us that says I'm going to live the life and I'm going to speak the truth. You need to do both, by the way. If your life doesn't match what you say, your testimony won't amount to much. But we need to be living the life and we need to be speaking the truth. Grace will finish the problem of sin in this world. God, Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. It's going to happen. Grace will victoriously triumph over all of that. 
Satan has long worked to destroy the plan of God, but it will be to no avail. And here, in my opinion, is one of the places that grace most shines of all. Because all of hell has unleashed an attack to stop the work of God, to thwart the plans of God. And you can look at the wickedness that takes on, goes on in this world, and you can look at the news and it's negative, negative, negative. And if Satan had his way, he would deceive the church and the rest of the world into thinking that there is no hope, that certainly God cannot fix this, that certainly it is too out of hand, that there is nothing that God can do, that He has been defeated, that there is no love and grace and mercy strong enough to change things. But on that day, God will show there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more sorrow, because the power of God's grace is sufficient to destroy every wicked work that the enemy has brought against it. And so in some way, we can look at all the wickedness of the world and see that God's grace is going to overcome it. And even the wickedness, what was meant for evil, God turns it on its head and uses it to complement the light and majesty of His amazing grace. What's going to happen to the devil? Revelation 20.10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil will get his and all of his demons as well. Revelation 21 and verse 8 says, concerning not only the, the demons and the devil, but talking about those that cause harm in this world, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There will come a time when God punishes every person that's ever lived for their sins if indeed they have not come to the grace of God. And you ask yourself this question, well, how is that grace? Let me say that just because God is gracious does not mean that He is not fair. And the reality is this. Say, so would God send anybody to hell? Well, not technically. What God does on that day is He confirms your choice here on this earth. What He does. You might live your life here on this earth and say, I reject God. I will not follow God. I do not need His rules. I do not need His commandments. I do not need His salvation. And on that day, God will say, Your will be done. Because you never said, God, Your will be done. That's really what heaven is. It's the confirmation. It is the eternal confirmation of the decision you made here on earth. Those that are in, enter into heaven are those who have made the decision to repent of their sins and say, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. And those that have spent their lives to their last dying breath rejecting the love of God and fighting against the plan of God and being enemies of God, on that day God will say, your will be done. And they will spend forever separated from the God they chose to reject their entire life. It's fair. And it's right. But yet today, God still stands with arms wide open 
to every one of them. Listen, I was the chiefest of sinners. I was a wicked person, corrupt on the inside. I was of the worst kind. Because while I knew I was wicked, I pretended I wasn't, and I would deceive people into thinking I cared about them, and I was their best friend, but really I cared about nobody but me. I was the chiefest. I was a criminal. I was a drug user, a drunkard, a sexually immoral person. You name the list. I was most of them. But one day, I heard God open His arms wide open to me and simply say, come. And when I came, grace changed me forever. And grace still changes today. Grace will finish the problem of sin in this world. Grace will defeat the question of whether or not God's love and grace is really greater and stronger than all the bad things that happen in this world. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Thank God that grace will eventually completely deal with this old nature. Thank God that the grace of God, where sin did abound, grace abounded all the more. Where wickedness tried to rule and reign, the grace of God was stronger and more powerful. And the grace of God takes us home. Thirdly today, grace, talking about the end of grace, where it is taking us to, the victory of it, grace will make us like Him. Again, let's look at Philippians chapter 3. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. God will pour out His grace on us in such a way that we'll never sin again nor think a sinful thought. What an awesome thought. Not only am I going to heaven, but God's going to make me even a newer me. I've got new life, but God hasn't given me my new body yet. I'm still in this old body. I'm pretty sure our new bodies don't lose hair up top. I'm pretty sure it's long and wavy. We are going to get a new body. And the most important thing about the glorious body that we're going to get, it's not that it's going to have long and wavy hair, but it's that we'll be made perfect like He's perfect. We won't think sinful thoughts anymore. Our minds won't go all these different directions and We won't have to fight the battle of faith where we're constantly trying to remind ourselves and renew our minds and say, no, that's wrong, that is sinful, and and, and repent of it. We won't even think the sinful thoughts. We will no longer sin. What an amazing thought that this is where grace is taking me. Not only is the grace of God powerful enough to save my soul from hell and change my life, here on this side of heaven. But when I make that glorious passing someday and I enter from this life to the next, God is going to give me a new body. And I will not think sinful thoughts. I will not fight with sin anymore. But I will have a glorious body. 
You see, God has been working to be in a relationship with us since the fall. This was the reason for the cross. Ultimately, that's what God wants. It's a relationship with us. It does us good as Christians to get a hold of that blessed fact and to get it here and then deep down in here. God does not want a master-to-slave relationship with us. You see, that's what the devil wants us to believe before coming to God. Well, if you come to Him, it's just going to be all this rules and regulations and it's going to be like you're in a prison and you'll have no freedom. That is an absolute lie. First of all, you're already in prison to your own sins and you have got no freedom. Second of all, God's grace sets us free. Changes us from the inside out. But see, the reason for the cross is because God desired a relationship with us. That's the number one thing God wants with you. He wants it more than He wants you to be here at church. He wants it more than you giving your tithe. He wants it more than you praying for so many days a week. He wants it more than how much you read your Bible. He wants it more than all of your religious activities. What God wants, listen to me, listen to me clearly, what God wants is you. That's what He wants. That's what He pursues with us. That's why He sent Jesus to bleed and die on Calvary's cross. That's why Jesus laid down His life willingly so that God could be in a right relationship with us. That's the purpose of it. This morning, if you're lost and you haven't come to God, listen to this preacher when I tell you He wants a relationship with you. He loves you. He loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. He knows everything you've ever done. He's seen everything you've ever did. He's known all of your thoughts. And yet, He loves you. And not only does He love you, He loves you more than anybody could ever love you. Joplin, is it true that God loves sinners? Yes. Because while we were yet sinners, God commended His what? Love towards us. And sent Jesus to bleed and die. Romans chapter 5. While we were sinners, He showed us He loved us. Because He wants a relationship with us. Now concerning the final triumph of grace, can I tell you ultimately this is what God's taking us to in heaven. A fuller and deeper, completely unhindered relationship with Him where we can know Him face to face, where we can see Him. Where we can wrap our arms around Him literally and just give Him a hug. Where we can sit down beside the river and talk with Him. Where no longer do we simply feel His presence, but we see it. No longer do we simply hear His voice in the still, small calm of our hearts but we hear it with our ears and we see Him with our eyes. It is this relationship, the fulfillment of that relationship that will be ours in heaven. Not only will we be different there, not only will we have a glorified body there, but we will be like Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now, We are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
We just know it was called a glorified body. But we know that when He is revealed, when Jesus comes back, when heaven is ours to hold, listen to this, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Grace will make us like Him. That's an amazing thought, child of God. This Jesus that came, that healed the sick, that gave sight to the blind, there won't be need, there won't be need for any miracles in heaven. There will be no sickness, there will be no sorrow. But this Jesus who came and did such things, we're going to be like Him. That's what the Bible says. What an amazing thing that God wants to make us like His Son. In the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we love, in the way we have grace towards one another. Grace is going to triumph one day. And when God, if you will, unleashes the fullness of His power on us, He's going to make us like Him. He changes us a lot here on this side of heaven. He changes our thoughts. He changes our attitudes. He changes our actions. He changes our hearts. He causes us to be born again. We discussed that in some of the weeks earlier on this very same study. He changes us from the inside out. His grace works in us. But what He has done in us and how He has changed us here pales in comparison to how He will change us when He makes us like Him. Grace will make us like Him. But more than that, And I believe here's the most amazing thing concerning the triumph of grace. More than making us like Him. More than giving us heaven. Grace will fully give us Him. Look again at 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. And look at this. For we shall see Him as He is. I'm going to go ahead and go to the next passage here, John chapter 17. For It said, for we shall see Him as He is. Look at John chapter 17. And Jesus was praying in John chapter 17. And it was His last prayer after that last supper. And He's praying for His disciples. And in the prayer, He says these two things. This is actually verse 5 and verse 24. I'll read them and then comment on them. In verse 5, Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. And for you loved me before the foundation of the world. More than making us like Him, more than giving us heaven, grace will fully give us Him. Jesus prayed 
in essence, I'm going to paraphrase, that we, his followers, will one day see him in the glory he had before the foundation of the world. When Jesus came, let's talk about the glory he had here on earth. He was sinless, spotless, wise, so wise that even as a young boy, that the scribes and teachers of the law were astonished at his understanding of the Scriptures. In all of the wicked attacks that came against him, the false accusations of the Pharisees, the plotting to kill him, never once like us did he lose his cool and come undone. But he maintained his perfectness at all times. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He healed the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He made the mute speak. He, gave, he allowed those that were lame to walk once again. He raised the, the dead out of the grave and brought them back to life. And yet, he still says, God, I just want them to see the glory I had before I came to this place. We cannot fully understand and fathom the glory of God. I want to close with a couple thoughts, this being one of them. Jesus had a glory that we have not yet seen. The Word of God says that no man can see God and live. Why? I want to submit a suggestion. I believe the reason that no man can see God and live is because this body cannot handle the glory of God. I believe it's a glory we can't understand. Matter of fact, Revelation tells us there's no need for sun and stars in heaven, that Jesus is the light. How does that work? I don't know. I'm telling you, it is difficult for our miniature brains to fully understand what God has prepared for us. But the, the, the radiance of Christ is going to be so bright that it lights the entire place forever. There is no night there in that place. In other words, because there's no night, we all get there on the same day. We're all going at the same time. It's the same day. Night hasn't fallen yet. I'm showing up on the same day that you do. He is the light. His glory, the fullness of His glory, we cannot fathom it. We cannot understand it. But here's the thing. We shall see Him face to face. Grace is going to fully give us Him. And what an amazing thought. I don't know about you. I want to see Him in His fullness. But I want to show you how grace is bigger than what I want. God doesn't give us this because we want it. God gives us this because He wants it. He desires that we see Him in His fullness. And I tell you again, God wants a relationship with us. It's the grace of God. It's not because of any good deed we did. It's not because of... that. Our lives were better on the scales than others. It is because of the unmerited love and favor and grace of Almighty God. And it's going to happen one of these days sooner than we think. It's going to happen. And what a blessed day that's going to be. 
God is going to finish it because God is a God of triumphant grace. He finishes what He started. And His grace will not be thwarted. Child of God, this morning I want you to be encouraged to know that your God is able to bring you off the battlefield victoriously. Doesn't mean you're never going to fall. Doesn't mean you're never going to fall short. Doesn't mean that you're never going to have problems and difficulties here on this side of heaven. But trust in the almighty grace of your God. It is triumphant. It is victorious. And on that blessed day, no matter how many battles you've won or how many battles you've lost, He will bring you off of this battlefield victoriously with your head held high. And He will show this world that His grace is sufficient, that where sin abounded, grace did abound all the more, that all of the attacks of the devil to try to dishearten us and to try to cause us to question God will fall short and His grace will win and His people will be glorified with Him and we will be made like He is and we will behold Him face to face. Finally, today, grace is still offered today. I'm going to ask our worship team to come as I read the last text today. Grace is still offered today. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 and 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For He will abundantly pardon. This morning, no matter what you've been through, no matter what your past does or does not look like, no matter how much pain and suffering you've been in, no matter how much pain and suffering you have caused others, He will abundantly pardon. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you haven't come to God, please come to Him today. Forsake your wicked ways and follow the Lord Jesus and know He will abundantly pardon. That word abundantly, it means beyond anything we could imagine. It means greater than what you would have expected. That where your sin did abound, grace will abound all the more. He will abundantly pardon every wicked thought, every wicked deed, every sinful thing you have ever did, every sin you've ever committed. He will abundantly pardon. And this morning, can I stand and plead with you to come to God? His grace is sufficient. And brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to know our God's grace is sufficient to bring us home. It is sufficient. Not only does it change us, not only does it save us, but it's going to bring us home and it's going to bring us home safely. Father, move all across this room right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray that You would encourage the hearts of Your people this morning that we would be fearless knowing that our God's grace is sufficient.
God, that we would be men and women of God who will stand up and be courageous for You. Thank You, God, for the power of Your grace. Thank You, God, that it triumphs over all the wickedness of this world, that Your grace is greater. Thank You, God, for where it's taking us. Thank You, God, for where it's going to lead us.